0: In this edition of Julia Bears True Connections podcast, our UK CEO, David Derlacher, speaks with Dr. Peter Troback of the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University's Said Business School. In their discussion, David and Peter speak about the trends we are likely to see in the future of healthcare and what we can learn from the COVID-19 pandemic to better improve our global healthcare infrastructure. Good morning, Peter. And thank you very much for joining us today. Could you perhaps kick us off by explaining to our listeners the work you do at the School Center for Entrepreneurship? Can you describe a little bit what goes on in the life of that center, please?
1: Sure. So the School Center for Social Entrepreneurship is based in Oxford at the Said Business School. And it's one of the older university centers for social entrepreneurship anywhere in the world. And we're an academic center, so we promote training of changemakers and the future social innovators who are going to change the world. We promote research to advance the field, and we bring people together, including hosting the Skoll World Forum, which is one of the world's largest gatherings for social entrepreneurship anywhere in the world. And I think our work is more relevant than ever at this moment because as we see the significant disruptions having in nearly every sector of society. Unleashed by the pandemic, social entrepreneurs are just the kind of people who reimagine the future and help to make it possible.
0: That sounds a very attractive place to be. And for people who are looking into the future, these must be extraordinary times. These past six months have challenged pretty much every single business in pretty much every single sector. And none more so in the spotlight than the healthcare sector. How do you think that things will change long term thanks to the pandemic in the future of healthcare?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of obvious ways that things are going to change, and that really means accelerating trends. So, for example, one thing that we have seen was as it became difficult for any kind of face-to-face interaction, including a face-to-face clinical interaction, seeing your doctor or your healthcare practitioner, we've seen an increased use of technology as part of the clinical interface. Those are things like video consultations, remote-based you know, laboratory work and things like that. So, I think some of those things have really been accelerated and won't necessarily Necessarily go away because they can provide sometimes better access, sometimes better quality and continuity. And that's not to say that the face to face interaction is ever going to go away, at least I hope not as a medic myself. But we've certainly seen an acceleration of technology that are changing the clinical interface between patient and healthcare provider. I think the second big trend that we've seen is one of the few unqualifying goods that we've seen over the last six months in this pandemic has been the remarkable scientific effort globally and really scientific cooperation to develop new treatments and new vaccines to combat the novel coronavirus. It's a global Manhattan project to nuke the virus. And we're seeing a speed and breadth and intensity and cooperation of discovery bringing all of our best minds to the problem that is absolutely remarkable. And the fact that we may be in a position to see a at least partially effective vaccine that's also safe within maybe a year's time of the discovery of a novel virus, I'm not predicting or, or saying that will be the case, but it's a possibility. That is record, record time. And so I think it really reinforces the incredible potential of our global scientific community when we put our minds to a problem. And as with any major investment, if you think about the way that aspects of the Cold War or the space race developed technology that spilled over into the private sector and transformed industries and led to things like the internet, I think and I hope that there are going to be spillover effects in terms of biomedical discovery that's going to come from this coronavirus effort that hopefully will help us to combat other health problems in the future. Those are some of the good things. On the flip side, there's some other stuff that we really need to re-examine in terms of our priorities and our assumptions. The first is that when we think about healthcare, we often think about the medical side of things. That's what happens in surgeries and hospitals between doctors and patients and in laboratories and things like that. We rarely think about the public health side of things, right? So medical care is about treating people who are sick. Public health is about keeping people healthy. And so those are things that happen upstream from any interaction between say a doctor and a patient. And what's become very clear over the last six months is that our public health systems are woefully inadequate. The ability to do surveillance uh, for new diseases, for things like building the capacity to do testing and contact tracing and isolation. You know, all of the things that we've seen very clearly now have been essential to bring the virus under control and been done successfully in places like South Korea and New Zealand. Actually, none of that is rocket science. None of that is new. These are tried and true public health methods that have been around for decades or more. Uh, The problem is years and years of underinvestment in those public health systems. And I think what's clear now, if you did a cost-benefit analysis, that investment of a few billions in public health systems could have offset trillions and trillions in economic losses in places like the UK and the United States. And then finally, the other big trend, I think, that we need to come to grips with is that this pandemic has really exposed the fragility in so many of our systems and particularly has exploited inequities in our system. And those are inequities sometimes along racial and ethnic lines, sometimes along economic or wealth lines. We've seen again and again and again is that those who have already been marginalized in our systems have been disproportionately hurt by this. And in fact, it's only widening those inequalities in many, many ways. And I think that's coming at a Time, that's very dangerous. So, we all want to get back to normal in some way, shape, or form. We're all tired after all the suffering and sacrifice that really everybody has had to endure over the last six months. But we have to understand that number one, this is still early days in the pandemic, it's not going away. Number two, there is no going back to normal. In fact, there are aspects of normal that got us into this mess in the first place. So, this is really a moment of deep change. We need to start to be thinking about what do we want want to become and what does that new normal look like?
0: We'll come back to some of those health inequities soon, but I want to first pick up on the first point that you made, which talked about us getting used to this new shift towards digital healthcare and the scientific cooperation that crosses borders. Data privacy has been a hot topic for a number of years, and that seems to be a topic that's picked up from time to time and it's been picked up most recently. Do you see that data privacy ultimately will start to restrict the amount that can be done online and the amount of focus that can be put into digital healthcare.
1: Well, it's obviously a very important consideration. There's little data that's more sensitive than someone's medical or health-related data. And in some ways, I think the field of medicine has been so far behind almost every other industry when it comes to the uptake of technology, even looking at things like electronic health records, very rudimentary in some cases and very fragmented in some cases. At least part of that has been obviously because of concerns around data privacy. And those are obviously very real concerns and something that we're grappling with More broadly in society, because we have regulatory systems oftentimes that are not fit for purpose and that are out of date. I think that it's inevitable that we're going to continue to see the trend towards the use of electronic information, the use of technology in our healthcare settings. And so it's incumbent upon us to figure out how to do that safely and how to make sure that we can maintain the privacy. So, will it be a restriction? Yeah, I think it's an obstacle that has to be overcome through smart policy. And smart design
0: you talk about the broader public health care side and the woefully inadequate preparation of so many countries around the world one of the major trends that we're seeing reported is the increasing level of elderly population that is forecast around the world, in particular in developed countries, and the increasing reduction in number of births that is expected. How much do you see these differences in public health care and the pressures that are expected? How are they going to be met in the future?
1: Well, I think in particular, it's going to put pressure on healthcare systems and the way that we finance our healthcare systems. Because of course, healthcare for elderly populations is much more expensive because they require quite a bit more care. So in the same way that those demographic trends are going to put pressure on our other social systems and welfare systems, we have a smaller fraction of the population that is working age and economically productive and a larger population that's going to be requiring those sorts of services. I think that's going to be difficult. And of course, advances in technology in discovery and treatments very happily do things to prolong life as well. That's going to be a challenge that, of course, we're going to need to grapple with. It's interesting that one of the unique features of this particular virus is that it's not surprising that we're seeing much higher mortality in elderly populations. But what is unusual is that we are seeing very modest effects on younger populations and in particular children, where lots of other respiratory viruses tend to disproportionately affect children and the elderly.
0: Do you see the difference in how different parts of the community react to the virus? Do you see that that is going to expose the overall health inequality that you mentioned earlier? Or do you think that actually there will be some chance, as you look around the world, that healthcare systems will ultimately be able to
1: cope? I think the answer to that question is unknown yet. I wish I knew. You know, I've been saying that this pandemic is a dress rehearsal for problems of the 21st century, right? What are sometimes called high impact, low frequency events, the things you know are maybe likely to come someday, but you don't know exactly where or when. Me and a lot of other public health folks have been saying, you know, a pandemic will come. We just don't know what pathogen it will be or when it will happen. In an age of globalization, in the age of climate change, we're going to be seeing more events like this. And the fact that we're seeing undue suffering and higher mortality amongst communities of color and poor communities is not because the virus cares, it's because it's exposing structural problems that already exist. I think we would be really wise to attend to this. In some ways, again, this is exposing some of the deeper questions of the 21st century around what kind of society that we want to be. This has exposed really fractures in our system, systems that I think were invisible to many for a long time and so Perhaps one of the good things is that by bringing this to light and bringing it to the surface in ways that we've seen, for example, with the racial justice movements and streets around the world, maybe gives us a chance to reframe our understanding and try to address it. But I think we ignore these problems at our peril.
0: You talked earlier about scientific cooperation and that great drive that seems to be in place around the world to come together around vaccine production and other forms of communication around data. However, what we've not seen has been that same level of cooperation and co appearance of message across governments around the world and some of the differences have played out. Do you think that there will ultimately be a drive towards greater coordination of governments or will it always be just ultimately down to the scientists getting past the politics?
1: I hope so. At the moment, I think the jury is still out. Going back again to this idea of the pandemic being a dress rehearsal for 21st century problems, another characteristic of 21st century problems is that they are big and messy and usually supranational, right? They transcend our borders, meaning that a nationalist approach is not going to be enough, right? With the pandemic, it's extremely clear. With climate change, it's extremely clear. One of the things that's challenging is that we sort of look at, we look at response to the pandemic through these country by country league tables as if it's the Olympics, you know, there are things we can learn from that, but it misses the whole point because the virus doesn't respect our borders and we need to have much more cooperation. Think about the challenges that we faced early on in the pandemic when there were these massive shortages of testing equipment and PPE. Of course, those things haven't gone away. We saw this Hunger Games scramble between countries, sometimes between individual states within the US, all competing for resources and in bidding wars against one another. That's not the smartest way to do things, right? In a better scenario, we have a mechanism where we make decisions together about how to deploy limited resources. The same kind of questions are going to come up if and when a safe and effective vaccine is developed, we're gonna need to vaccinate literally billions of people, probably twice in order to do this. And so as that capacity comes, how are we gonna deploy those things? Is it gonna be wealthy countries buying up all the stocks and hoarding them for themselves as the U.S. president seems to be doing, or is there gonna be a global mechanism for sharing. you know, I think it's clear that our institutions of global governance, the WHO and other UN institutions among them, are probably not fit for purpose in the 21st century, where they're actually more important than ever. So I'm not seeing a lot of discussion around this right now. There is an analysis or an inquiry into WHO and how it can be strengthened and lessons from the pandemic. But we really do need to think about how and whether there can be more effective institutions or mechanisms for global governance and cooperation, because we're going to face global threats exactly like this, we retreat into our own nationalist corners, it actually hurts us all.
0: You mentioned the expectation around mass vaccination programs being brought about around the world, but you've been based in Rwanda in the past for many years. You've seen the difficulty of eradicating major outbreaks of diseases. I think only recently the Democratic Republic of Congo was successful in eradicating Ebola. And that's many years after the virus became a major problem there. How likely is it that vaccination will hold out? the source of all the solutions here?
1: I think we should not think about a vaccine as a magic bullet, and we should not think about a vaccine as something that's going to come and solve all of our problems. I think it's really dangerous to do so because there's so much uncertainty. There's so much that we don't know. First off, true eradication of this novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, meaning elimination from human circulation, at this stage is fairly unlikely. It's in every corner of our societies around the world. It circulates in warm temperatures and in colder temperatures and different climates. It's unlikely that it will disappear entirely. Maybe it's theoretically possible, more likely it's going to be something that is circulating with us. We don't know how long immunity will last, either from having survived the infection or from getting an eventual vaccination. That may be months, it may be a couple of years, it may be longer. So as we learn, that's something that's going to have to come into the fold as well. The other thing that we don't know about these potential vaccines is how effective they're going to be. This is not binary, right? There are some vaccines that give you virtually 100% protection virtually for a lifetime, but most of them are less than that. And the first vaccines that are approved are probably gonna be less than perfect. The US Centers for Disease Control suggests that a vaccine that's 50% effective, meaning that it either reduces your chance of getting infected by half, or it reduces the chance of having severe disease if you get infected by half. So that's good, but not amazing, right? I say that because, yes, we all hope and pray that this is going to happen. Yes, we applaud the scientists doing incredible work to race for a vaccine and the forward-thinking policymakers that are investing in pre-productions of hundreds of millions of doses so we can roll this out quickly. It's not going to be a panacea and what we cannot do, particularly in places where the virus is still raging right now in August of 2020, is sit back and be complacent and or fatalistic and say we're just going to have to suffer on through until the vaccine comes. We've already got a playbook for how to go on offense and to crush the virus and to virtually eliminate the virus from circulation through our behaviours. And that's actually the best way to get economies back open. And so I think that's what we all need to be focusing on right now while we continue to hope and pray that the vaccine comes along soon.
0: As you say, governments have been wrestling with both the healthcare impact, but also the economic impact and trying to find that middle ground whereby both can be managed. It's the same for business leaders. What do you think business leaders need to do to protect society from that second wave and from the healthcare impact to this virus, but also protect their companies and the economy from being damaged.
1: I think it's all about the virus, and we have a false choice when we think there's a trade-off between Public health and the economy between controlling the virus and the so called reopening of society. It's not going to work until the virus is under control. All of this economic devastation that has been wrought has been wrought by the way that we have to respond to this virus. And that's not only through lockdowns, but other kinds of physical distancing behaviors that we've had to introduce. So if you look around the world at what's happening right now, the countries that have been most successful in getting back to some kind of economic normality, or at least mitigating the economic destruction that we've seen in so many places, there are countries that have instituted a strategy of what we call elimination. What that means is saying that we will not tolerate any level of circulation of the virus in our community or in our country. So in the UK right now, we are tolerating a couple of thousand new infections per day, and at least a few handfuls of deaths every day. The problem with that is as we push all of our reopenings to the limits, try to get folks back out and about into shops and back into work and into restaurants and kids into schools. If there's already a baseline circulating level of virus, the odds are that it comes roaring back. And we start to see these flare-ups is much, much, much higher than if our baseline level of transmission was near zero. So by trying to have it both ways and suppressing the virus just enough and then trying to push reopening to the limit, what we're doing is inviting the virus to come back, we're inviting that second wave, or at least a cycle of lockdowns and releases that's going to be economically devastating. Consumers aren't stupid. They're not going to go into restaurants if they don't feel safe. People aren't going to send their kids into school if they don't feel safe. So we can tell people, get back to normal, get back to business, but unless they're feeling safe, it's not going to happen. So I think particularly now when we have the benefit of the summer months when the weather is warm and we can more things outside, which is much, much, much lower risk from the standpoint of transmission. What we need to be doing and what business leaders should be pushing for actually is with governments to pursue strategies of elimination. If we take a long-term view and understand that this isn't going away and that investments being a little bit more conservative right now to crush the virus means we can be a lot safer and actually a lot more open economically a few months from now. That to me is the path forward.
0: Dr. Peter Droback, thank you very much for joining us today. And thank you for your time and insight into the challenges faced in the future by the global healthcare sector. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, David. Appreciate it.
0: That's all for this edition of Julius Bear's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening. And please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at juliusbaer.com.